And thank you also for picking up the reading at the last minute this morning. Thank you. So as I said at the beginning, we're going to have a look at uh, the beginning of the book of Acts. Or, or This series actually looks at the first part of Acts, the first ten chapters, really. Um, and um, I suppose it did come out of me just thinking about you know, where the church has been, and not just this church, church, but many churches, and what might the new year hold. And I thought the, the, the theme of the church in action, and you see I've sort of played around with the word action there to try and get the book of Acts in there. Uh, it's probably a good theme for us to look at. Uh, because when we think about it, as Christians, um, we are always to be in action, in one sense. Uh, that doesn't mean we can't be re- reflective and meditative, but we are called to go. God, Jesus sends us. So we've got to go find something to do. And uh, we're going to look at the book of Acts to help us inspire us on that. In that reading, in verse 8 of that reading that Joe read to us, uh, uh, Jesus says, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, Sumeria, and to the very ends of the earth. And in that verse, Jesus is promising the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church, but I would say in in the same breath, in the same sentence, he makes it pretty clear that the primary purpose of that gift is to equip the disciples to go, to get out there and uh, to to, share the good news. It's a task that starts in their own backyard, but it's a task that takes them to the very ends of the earth. But before that can actually happen, the thing about the book of Acts, it's quite clear that before this can happen, which is Pentecost, effectively, Uh, The risen Lord Jesus needs to leave his disciples, men, and also the women in his circle of friends, uh, who he's grown, I'm sure, to love as well as they loved him. And he is to ascend to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. Because then the Father and the Son at Pentecost effectively are sending the Holy Spirit once more to empower the life of the church, and that happens by the Holy Spirit being a gift of God to each one of us as we live our days on this earth. So the book of Acts starts with the Ascension and not with Pentecost. It's very quite tempting with Acts to skip chapter 1 and you know, go straight to chapter 2, but that isn't what Luke does. You remember Luke, who's writing Acts, is also the author of the Gospel of Acts, and he's creating a bridge between Jesus' earthly ministry and what the church is then going to go on and do in his name. So the ascension is a very important milestone on that journey of a continued mission of God, both before Christ, in Christ, and in in the sense of after Christ on earth in that sense as well. Jesus being restored to his rightful place in heaven in a sense means he's passing the baton to the church, like in a relay race, I suppose, might be the analogy. A church whose central purpose, like Jesus' central purpose, was and is and always will be, as long as it exists, to preach the good news 
of the kingdom. And we preach the good news of the kingdom. Do we do that just in word, but we also do it in deed? It isn't just about what we say from the pulpit or what we say in church. It's about what we actually go and do and how it's reflected in our lives. Now, when I looked at the passage, I saw a structure there which <clears throat> I think is quite instructive as well because it helps us understand what those early followers of Jesus believed, you know, what was the foundation, what was the ground on which they were standing in order to then, after Pentecost, be sent. And one of the things that Jesus does at the Ascension, he seems to spend a lot of the time making sure they understand you know, these sorts of tenets as well. And, and that's really what I'm going to try and draw out as we look at today. But I, I do this as well because, okay, that was 2,000 years ago, but the relevance for us today, it's very important to know what is the ground we stand on. If we get very ambivalent or, or wishy-washy about understanding what is the basis of our faith, then how are we going to share that in a cohesive, clear message to anybody? All we're going to share is a muddly, fuddly, you know, neutral story. So it's very important we individually know that, all right? And we, sometimes we have to remind ourselves about what we believe. That's important. It's part of a walk of a, a Christian, all right? But it's also important the church understands where this church stands as well, all right? Um, so we're going to look at this and uh, hopefully draw a few lessons from that. And again, the reason I suppose I want to emphasize this and, um, is that the danger is in church, we can become very good social workers, and there's nothing wrong with good social workers, the way, so do not misunderstand this comment. But the danger is we can become just good social workers. And we are more than that. You know, we are heralds of the kingdom. All right, we're told to be out there declaring this to the world. All right? We're not called to just be good social workers, although there's definitely a place for good social work in the church. So I've talked about four pillars. I don't know if that helps at all. Um, and I'm just going to look at each one in a little bit more uh, depth. So the first one is Jesus rose. No, he really rose. All right. Um, verse 3, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke to them about the kingdom, about the kingdom of God. It's pretty clear from the scriptures and certainly from the gospels that um, quite a few of those followers of Jesus had their doubts about whether Jesus really had arisen. And we can see in this little scripture is that Jesus put aside much of his time in those 40 days, setting those doubts aside so there could be no question, no room for doubt in the minds of those believers, those eyewitnesses, that he had indeed been raised from the dead. To strengthen the faith, Luke says, he says, they were given many proofs. Sadly, Luke didn't bother writing any down for us, but he just says they were given many examples. It wasn't just one example, there were many examples. And Luke also says to us, they were convincing. They were convincing. And we do know, don't we, from, from various gospel accounts, that Jesus, when he met with his disciples after his resurrection, he invited them, people, to touch him, to touch, hold, touch his body, put their hands in their, his wounds. He ate and he drank with them just to try and demonstrate how real his physical presence was. 
his resurrected presence, glorious presence, but still a physical reality in this world. Luke 24, 39, Jesus said to, in one situation, look at my hands, look at my feet with the wounds. It's me. He's saying, touch me. Touch me. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you can see that I have. Faith in Jesus' resurrection was vital to the church because their own spiritual authority and power and ultimate hope as they went out into the world was based upon it. The heart of a Christian story is the reality of the resurrection, that Jesus rose. Now, it might find a bit funny me saying that in a church. You think, well, yeah, sure, of course. But it, I'm saying it because this is one of the absolute foundational pillars of the church. And, and doubts cross all our minds. But I just want to remind us this morning, Jesus arose from the dead. If Jesus had been dead, the church would have had nothing more to say. But because he was alive, the gospel message remains. And it remains a vibrant message. It remains a message full of hope and life. Also, we have to remember, in Jesus' day, the Jewish position after his death was that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus away from the tomb. And the believers initially weren't in a position to particularly refute that. But they needed to do so if they were to act as witnesses. So I think this group of believers that Jesus gathers together at this, this stage are special eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And that emphasis of their ministry is recorded on a number of occasions in the book of Acts. You'll see that I've come up a number of times in the book of Acts. There's just two I've got here. Chapter 2, verse 32. This is Peter's talking. He said, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. And later in verse chapter 3, for example, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And you'll see that repeatedly in the book of Acts. And that's one of the key, almost like this drumbeat, one of the drumbeats in Acts. He's risen, he's risen, he's risen. Now, most of the people in Jerusalem would have known that Jesus had been crucified, but they didn't know he'd been raised from the dead. But these disciples, by their words, by the, their walk and their works, these early believers, their whole purpose and mission was to spread the good news, to tell the world that Jesus was very much alive. And in a similar way for us today in this church and as individuals, though we are not eyewitnesses, our words, our walk, and our, work, our ways need to continue to speak into the world where we live, to our friends, our families, our neighbours. They need to continue to speak out that same clear message. He is alive. He has risen. As I say before, if we're unclear about where we stand on such a basic fundamental, then we will be equally unclear about any message, any way we should try and share it. We will lack conviction. So this is the first pillar. But they go on. If you look at the scripture, it goes on. Verses 6 and 7. So when they met together, they asked Jesus, they said, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority. 
Now, when we read the, the Gospels, uh, we discover the apostles had pretty strong political views, views of a kingdom that was going to be established soon. They were often much more concerned about their own personal positions and privileges within that kingdom. As loyal Jews, they longed for the defeat of their enemies, the Romans. They longed for the final establishment of a rule under God's king, the Messiah. Now, they were right to expect an eventual worldly kingdom. But I think verse 3 tells us that as Jesus appeared to his disciples, he still spoke, as he'd done in his ministry, of an inbreaking kingdom of God, referring to a process over time where the reign of God breaks in and is established in individual hearts and lives of all those who put their faith in him. In Romans, Paul talking about the kingdom, how it's not a worldly thing, but it's, it's much, so much more. He says, the kingdom of God, this is Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace, of joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a kingdom that breaks in over time into individual human hearts, even where faith is as small as a mustard seed, so that they might in time be changed from the inside out. And although we only glimpse this end, this final end today, we are assured in the scriptures of the inevitability of that outcome. And we are assured of that through the presence of the Spirit in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He's anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, put his spirit on us in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. God has not revealed the timetable of his kingdom to us, so it's totally futile to speculate, but he has promised in his word it's inevitable realisation and therefore one to which we continue to look and to work. I think the important thing here is that we trust in God for tomorrow while we be active in the present serving him, sharing the gospel message with others now. And again, this is one of these other drum beats that comes out. There's about, I've got about five or six uh, you know, Acts verses down here which are this sense of the kingdom is coming, boom. The kingdom is coming, boom. The kingdom is coming, boom. And again, if you look at Acts, you'll see, again, that rhythm, driven through it as well. So the second pillar, God's kingdom is coming. It's coming in God's good time. It is not a question of if. It is only a question of when. And then the third point which comes out, I think, in this scripture is that of the Holy Spirit. So, reading verses 4 and 5 once more, and verse 8. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait here, for the gift of my Father has promised you, which you have heard me speak about. John, he baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then verse 8, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In the Gospel accounts, John the Baptist had announced a future baptism 
of the Holy Spirit. That's in all, all four Gospels. And now that prophecy is on the eve of being fulfilled. Jesus also had promised about the coming of the Spirit. We get a lot of that in John, sort of John 14, 15 as well. It would be a Spirit who would empower the disciples so that they would be able to go and to serve the Lord and to accomplish his good purposes. Now, verse 8, I think, is also quite key. It explains the power in the church comes only from the Holy Spirit, not from men or women. It comes from the Holy Spirit. God's people in action. Action empowered inside, out into the world. God's people who experience repeated filling of the Spirit as they face new opportunities and new challenges. People like us, ordinary people, but enabled to do extraordinary things because God was at work in their lives. And also that word, these are always like the drumbeats, because we're going to be hopefully seeing more of this as we go through the other sort of uh, Sundays. But witness is also a very, very key word in the book of Acts. All right? um, whether it's in a noun or a verb, it appears, as far as I can see, about 30 times in the book of Acts. And a witness is simply someone who tells what they've seen or heard. All right? And if you've ever been in a court where you've been a witness in a court situation, the judge is not interested in your opinion. He wants to know what you know. And I think it's quite a helpful analogy, I found, of actually sharing the gospel. You know, some people, we're not always all qualified to do everything that we might see others do. But we should be able to say, share what we know. You know, it's like, so, you know, the judge comes up to us, well, tell, tell, tell me what you know about this person. I don't know if you find that analogy helpful or not, but I, I find that quite helpful. I think it's quite clear. If you look at Ephesians, you know, some people are called to be evangelists. Some people are naturally very good at that sort of work. All right? Um, but I think we are all called to be witnesses. Maybe you can see the distinction there. We're all called to tell the, word, the world about the faith we have, what we have personally seen and heard and learnt as well. Not every Christian, by any means, can bring people to a place of faith and commitment, but I do believe every Christian can and should bear witness to their Saviour. And also, just back to that verse 8, um, that's the verse that, where it talks about, you know, you're going to spread the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and uh, the ends of the earth. That broadly is the structure of Acts, by the way. Chapters 1 to 7 uh, are all focused primarily on Jerusalem. The next section, 8 to 9, Samaria and Judea, and from about 10 onwards, which we're not going to be covering, unfortunately, this time, um, is uh, to the ends of the earth. And again, as I read that, I go, you know, I think no matter where we live, our spirit-led witness, which needs to be spirit-led, all right, if we've been listening, needs to begin at home. And just as the, the, the early church started in Jerusalem and went into the world, you know, we start in whatever address and whatever street you happen to be 
living in. And then it can go on from there. I think if we want to be part of a church in action, then the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us and through us is not a luxury, it's an absolute necessity, and we should plead with God for it. And then the last pillar, before I draw these strings together, is the firm assurance they were given of Jesus' return. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud had hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go. Our Lord's ascension was an important part of his ministry, for if he had not returned to the Father, he could have not sent with the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is no, by no means sitting in heaven, idly twiddling his thumbs, waiting for the Holy Spirit, and far, far more, waiting for us to complete the task. The scriptures tell us that in heaven today, Jesus, in this Hebrews 4, verse 14, is interceding interceding for us as a high priest, giving us the grace that we need for a life of service. 1 John 1 verse 9, he's also our advocate before the Father, forgiving us when we confess our sins to him. Jesus the exalted, Jesus the glorified head of the church, continues to work today through the Holy Spirit amongst his people, accomplishing his Father's will. As the believers watched Jesus being taken up into glory, two angels appeared. And it's worth again noting, the book of Acts is full of angels. Sometimes they're, they're recognised and sometimes they're not. But the book of Acts, again, I've got a list of quotations here, where obviously you know, God works through angels, as I believe he does, right up to the present day. The angels, Hebrews 1 and verse 14 says are servants of the saints. They come as ministering spirits. They come to help us in God's will and in God's purposes. And those two messages came and gave those early believers the firm assurance that Jesus would come back again just as he had been taken from them. So regardless of what views different people may have of God's timetable, Christians agree that Jesus is coming again, and that he can come at any time. And once more, this in itself should be a great motivation for faithful Christian service today. So, four pillars, four pillars of faith. They're these early Christians. Jesus is about to leave them all together. But really what Jesus seems to be doing in conversation with them is helping them understand you know, what, where they stand, where they are. And I think that scripture, broadly, so you don't have a four up there anymore, um, is, is, is allows them to confidently stand. It's a firm foundation from where they can be sent out. You know, back to that Joshua uh, opening call to worship, you know, be bold and courageous. Well, Jesus is alive. Be bold and courageous. The kingdom is coming. Be bold and courageous. The Holy Spirit is with you. 
be bold and courageous. Jesus will return. Be bold and courageous. Amen.